From Washington, this is CQ on Congress, the nonpartisan source for in-depth analysis of Capitol Hill's policy debates. I am Sean Zeller. The budget agreement enacted this month will boost the defense discretionary budget to $700 billion this year and to $716 billion in fiscal 2019. It'll be about double the defense budget of 2002 on the eve of the Iraq War and close to the level of 2011, the highest on record. I'll talk about lawmakers' justification for the spending today with CQ defense reporter Andrew Clevenger and Mandy Smithberger, who heads the Strauss Military Reform Project at the Project on Government Oversight, a watchdog group. Welcome to both of you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. All right, Andrew, how big is the budget increase for defense? Put it in context for us. Um, you know, what's the, what is it in percentage terms? Um, the president's budget request for 19 is about a 14% jump uh, for the Pentagon. And that is in keeping with the budget agreement that a Congress has already passed? Yes. Okay. And so what's the justification for that? What are lawmakers saying about why such a big increase is needed at a time when we're not mounting a full-scale invasion somewhere, we're not moving hundreds of thousands of troops across the globe? Secretary Mattis went to the Hill and, and pleaded his case recently, um, arguing that readiness, our ability to fight tonight is the phrase that the military loves to use, has really waned um, during the years of sequestration where you saw caps on how much could be spent on defense. Our military remains capable, but our competitive edge has eroded in every domain of warfare, air, land, sea, cyber, and space. Under frequent continuing resolutions and sequester's budget caps, our advantages continue to shrink. The combination of rapidly changing technology, the negative impact on military readiness resulting from the longest continuous stretch of combat in our nation's history, and insufficient funding have created an overstretched and under-resourced military. And by having ongoing conflicts during a time of budget uh, shortfalls, as the Pentagon would see it, a lot of equipment has been getting a lot of extra use without funds to replace it. So uh, the Pentagon has been uh, putting off a lot of those uh, spending needs. And as anyone knows, if you keep using things without replacing them, they're going to wear out sooner or later. And, and the argument from the Pentagon is we're at a breaking point where our equipment is getting old, our people are, are uh, being deployed longer and longer. And to address these things, we really need extra funding to, uh, to accomplish that. Mandy, does our military have a readiness problem? There are shortfalls in some equipment, that's for sure, but it's not a result of lack of funding. It's a lack of prioritization. It's continuing to buy overpriced weapon systems that we can't afford that are going to be unaffordable for us to operate in the field. It's a lack of making choices and prioritizing our current wars in order to make sure that we have these new weapon systems. Now, Andrew, we hear about the budget sequestration. This was the result of the 2011 Budget Control Act, which Congress passed. There was a, a deal between Democrats and, and Republicans to hold the line on defense spending and on domestic spending as a way of uh, keeping the deficit in check. Um, was the was there real cost for the Defense Department? I mean, how how big how big was the cut for them? 
the comptroller in rolling out this budget argued that the Pentagon has uh, lost four hundred billion uh, in funds because of sequestration. That that's you know a shortfall that they've seen, and as as they say, that's real money. Right, but it's we, as I mentioned in the intro, uh, the Defense Department budget peaked at about seven hundred and fifteen billion or so in twenty eleven, um, and it is now in the low $600 billion range. Is that fair? Mid. Mm-hmm. Especially when you start including the war spending that's been used as a release valve from the Budget Control Act. Uh, and in that case, Congress and the Department of Defense have been using half of that war spending account for base budget needs. Right. That's a, a way that Congress got around the 2011 Budget Control Act was to use this fund, um, the OCHO, OCHO fund, to get some extra money for war spending. That was the theory, but in reality, and everything as, else that they as want. you say, they spent it on things that weren't necessarily war funding. So the, the budget caps weren't kept too strictly. No, no, and uh, there were twice two-year deals that, that raised the caps uh, that Congress agreed to. One thing we've heard um, from Senate Armed Services Committee Chairman John McCain, the Arizona Republican, is uh, he cited the spate of accidents that have happened in the military in recent months, ships colliding, planes, helicopters crashing, and said this is the result of this readiness problem. Um, Does the extra funding go towards fixing that? Um, Short answer, yes, but it's it's hard to draw a straight line to that because part of the reason I think that the Navy or, or the other services are seeing these these incidents take place is because they're being stretched thinner and thinner. Um, the Navy would argue that it's maintaining a, a very um, substantial forward presence, and, and you have to be out in the, in the water sailing. And um, they don't have as much time to do training um, that keeps them sort of sharp and, and prepared to anticipate this sort of incident happening. So if you don't have another ship coming online behind you to spell you for a bit, um, then, you know, training is one of the things that gets cut in order to maintain mm-hmm. that forward presence. Now, Mandy, you mentioned prioritization. I, I suppose from the perspective of your average American, this is not a particularly busy time for the Defense Department. We are not mounting a full-scale invasion of another country somewhere across the globe right now. We are certainly still involved in fighting in Afghanistan. We still have people in Iraq. We're still fighting ISIS. But they don't seem like the major wars of yesteryear. So why such a burden on our training? So I think in the Navy example, what you need to look at is how procurement has been prioritized over paying for training, that the Navy thought they could cut corners in training by using disks. Um, by They wanted to demonstrate that some of these new ship programs, for example, like the littoral combat ship were a success, so they deployed them before testing them. And as a result, we had sailors that were being marooned in Singapore because they weren't able to get back. Right now, we have an LCS stuck in Montreal Uh, because these are systems that aren't done being tested and repaired so that they're actually ready to go out. Andrew, what about weapon system? Obviously, a big part of the Pentagon budget goes towards the development of new weapons. What are the priorities right now in that regard? I think modernization is is something you hear a lot at the Pentagon. Um, The F-35 is a a very visible high-ticket item. Um, This budget calls for procuring 77 of them in fiscal 19. 
across the services, you're seeing efforts to buy lots more uh, weapons. There's development. The Air Force is also developing a new uh, B-21 stealth bomber. Um, this budget doesn't call for procurement of that, but adds a lot of funding for research and development. Mm -hmm. Now, what is, tell our listeners, what is the F-35? The F-35 is a fifth-generation stealth uh, combat jet. So, Mandy, about the F-35, do we need it? So with the F-35, you have a key example of where you have poor prioritization. We already own hundreds of these planes. We're still in the process of testing them. And the cost of making those repairs are so costly that earlier this year, the Air Force was toying with just not updating some of the planes that we already have, which would have meant that we would have spent somewhere between 21 and $40 billion for planes that we were never going to be able to use in combat. Now, we've heard a lot in, in terms of defense procurement about a shift away from the kinds of weapons that were used to fight full-scale wars against other countries to weapons that are better suited to our modern warfare, um, where we're fighting terrorist groups and, and the like. Ha has the Pentagon made that shift? Well, this budget is a market shift back to the type of warfare that you're um, just previously describing. Um, in the new National Defense Strategy released in January, uh, the Pentagon described uh, a return to great power competition with Russia and China and less of an emphasis on counterterrorism missions. We recognize great power competition is once again a reality. We will continue to prosecute the campaign against terrorism by, with, and through our allies. But in our new defense strategy, great power competition, not terrorism, is now the primary focus of U.S. national security. Interesting. Manny, does that make sense? I think it's something that we always need to be prepared for, but we've found that the services always want to prioritize those kinds of big wars. Those are the missions that are fun and exciting to do. That's where you get the really cool technology and equipment to combat them. And these kind of counterinsurgency wars that we've been doing, we never think that we're going to be in them, and yet we keep on being in them. All right. And Andrew, nuclear uh, modernization of our, our nuclear arsenal, that was another issue that's come up. What's in the budget for that? There is money for... Um, modernization of all three legs of the nuclear triad. So that's the ability to launch nuclear weapons by sea, by air, and by land. Um, so you, you have research and development money for um, long-range strike, LRSO. Um, I'm sorry, I'm using the uh, acronym here. And uh, a new class of nuclear submarine, which is very expensive to develop. Um, Mandy, you can tell us all how, how over budget it is already. Uh, well, we don't know yet how over budget it is. We just know that it's going to be extremely costly. And, you know, there are some places where that kind of investment can make, you know, make sense for our national security just because it's expensive doesn't necessarily mean that we don't need it. But how many of these systems do we need? And are they providing us capabilities that are worth the price is the question Congress doesn't ask often enough. Okay. And so big, big new budget. Does this mean uh, more pay and benefits for soldiers? There is a, a pay raise for uh, the military built into this budget of 2.6%. Um, having a lot of, of soldiers and, and seamen and, and airmen and, and Marines is, is expensive. Right. And that, that 2.6 doesn't sound like a lot of money, but President Trump wants to give civil service employees, non-military government employees, 0% in 2019. Yeah, 2.6. Uh, Sounds good compared with zero. Exactly. <laughs> the military hasn't always gotten uh, annual raises either. Gotcha. Um, are our troops treated well, Mandy? Um, I think yes and no. 
I think that there is a lot of focus on the pay and benefit packages as a way of showing our support for our troops, but we would like to see more demonstration of support for our troops by making sure that we have effective weapon systems that they can maintain. We've had problems with retaining pilots, not because we're not paying them enough, but because the planes aren't available for them to be getting the kind of flight hours that they want. They came into the Air Force and into the Navy as pilots because they wanted to fly. They didn't want to be hanging around the maintenance all day and doing paperwork. So, Andrew, let's let's put the military personnel in context. How many people are in our fighting force right now? I, I think the number is somewhere around 1.3 million active duty service members. And we have, I believe, around 700,000 civilians who also work for the Defense Department, which um, in a civil service workforce across the entire government of about 2 million, so around a third of the civil service is in the Defense Department, too, which gives you a sense. The Defense Department is a huge part of our government. Oh, but don't forget the service contractors, too, that make up a lot of the cost as well. So both kind of serving in civilian roles and providing analysis, helping to maintain weapon systems, that's a large part of the cost and where we think there are a lot of opportunities for savings. I also think back to the GI Bill, which passed, I, I believe it was 2008, the, the modern GI Bill. And it seems on one hand that benefits uh, for soldiers are very good, very generous. But on, on the other hand, you hear reports like we, we saw in military.com recently that some soldiers are still on food stamps. So what are we supposed to make of that? I think it's important to realize that supporting our service members isn't just in the defense budget, that there are lots of parts of the federal budget that support service members and their families. Okay. And 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 pay and benefits runs about... It, 153 billion in the fiscal 19 uh, defense budget. So it's a it's a big chunk of of the top line number. All right, Andrew, thank you for coming on the show. Mandy, thank you for coming. Thank you. Thanks, Sean. I'm Sean Zeller. Thank you for joining us. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and on NPR One. And please rate us on iTunes. For more on this and other stories, visit rollcall.com or find us on Twitter at CQNow or at rollcall. 